0: I'd ask you now to take your Bibles and open them to Paul's first epistle to the Colossian Church. And we are so thankful again to be in church today. We meet as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the church is a living, visible, breathing entity. You are here. I am here. We can see each other and together we are the ones responsible for doing the ministry of the Lord's church, that discipling, baptizing, teaching his people to obey him. Now, in essence, these parts of the commission, the teaching, baptizing, and, and discipling, um, teaching people to obey the Lord, those are parts of church ministry. They're part of the commission. And we're sure of the church's importance because of these, that God has only one means to accomplish this in the world today, to preach the gospel and to make disciples and to form these disciples into new churches that will continue on so that his promise is sure that the church will be here until he comes again. Now today we continue our study of the New Testament church and we're speaking specifically of the ministry that the Lord gave us The Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter, was the New Testament's foremost apologist for church doctrine. We learn more about church ministry and church organization from the Apostle Paul than we do from anyone else in the Scriptures. Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles, that is, to non-Jewish people and the church in this age, until Jesus comes again, is primarily made up of non-Jewish people. We are primarily a Gentile church. In the book of Acts, there is the history of the expansion of the church in the first century. The apostle Paul is the prominent character of that book. That is after his conversion in chapter 9. And then after chapter 11, uh, those chapters... Paul takes over, and what we have is a record of Paul's um, missionary journeys. He is the central figure of the book after that point. And in every city where he went, he preached the gospel, and he gathered his converts and made them into churches. Most of the New Testament epistles were written by Paul, and they are instructions and encouragements for these new churches that he founded. This is... In essence, the New Testament story begins with the gospel of Jesus Christ and the selection of the apostles Uh, to be the material of the first church. He chose them, he taught them, and commissioned them to continue his salvation ministry after he went to the cross and died for our sins. He gave the church the commission to preach, and only the church has this commission. So God's plan and program for the world today, and since that time... Uh, has been the church. Now he did promise us that there will come a future kingdom in which all Jews and Gentiles and all people that are that he redeems are gathered into that kingdom under the under the lordship, the headship, the kingship of Christ. But until that happens, it is the church that has this great responsibility of worshiping the Lord, honoring the Lord and giving his gospel to the nations. So we know then that the Christian faith is centered in the church. And it's only natural that the chief apologist for the Christian faith would also be the one who is the chief in defense of the church. Now, here in Colossians chapter 1, we have perhaps the best synopsis of church ministry found in Scripture. Last week, we took time to read the entire chapter. I don't want to read that whole section again. I trust that you have read it and you know it. But I do want to call your attention to verses 20 through 29, And these will be the verses that we will consider today. So if you will look in Colossians uh, chapter 1, let me just start reading at uh, verse number 19 instead of verse number 20. We'll start in verse number 19. Speaking of Jesus Christ, it says, For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, Be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind to the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. Whereof I am made a minister, according to the dispensation of God, which was given to me for you, "...to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus." whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. The section that we've read follows immediately upon the grand statements that the apostle made in verses 15 through 19, where he speaks of the preeminence of Christ. Now, I'd like you to look, if you would, for just a moment at verses 16 through 18, and I want you to see how the apostle connects That in all things he might have the preeminence. Well, it would be passing strange that the apostle, the apostle of the church, would mention the creation of God along with the church if the church was not integral to everything that God does in the world. His work is done through the church, the church is his agent for his work. His church is active, it demonstrates a connection uh, to him, this visible entity of his, that does his work has been documented throughout history. And nearly every week I labor to keep that point in front of you to make sure that you recognize that Christians must be committed to the assemblies of God's people. And always the apostle is dealing with these assemblies. It's the assembly, God's people meeting together. And that's what the church is. It is the assembly and we gather together as workers of his ministry. Now, in last week's message, I, I shared with you the church's primary work expressed in these verses. All of the other works that of ministry that we do feed up into this one purpose and flow out of it. And that is the ministry of exaltation, exalting Jesus Christ. This is the primary work of the church, Christ exaltation. A few weeks ago, I was reading a summary of the writings of some of the most beloved and well-known Puritan authors, and if you need to read something or want to read something that is soul-stirring and Christ-exalting, just talk with me and I can make some recommendations for you. But out of the Puritan era came the Westminster Confession of Faith. Out of that came the Savoy Declaration. There came the two London Baptist Confessions of Faith and some others. And their views of God and His purpose of creation are one and the same throughout these statements, throughout these declarations of faith. You've heard me quote many times the Westminster Confession of Faith concerning man's chief purpose, that the chief end of man is to glorify Jesus Christ. The crowning achievement of God's creation is man, and man was created in the image of God. And if man was created with this chief purpose of glorifying Christ, then we would well expect that there is no other purpose for the collection of God's people into the church than to do this, to glorify Jesus Christ. The sum of that collection is greater glory than the individual by himself. And so thus Christ has a church that is made up of many members. Every member is a minister, and the entire ministry of the church, again, feeds up into that singular purpose of Christ's glory. And so if a, if a person, if a person in the church says, I don't care about ministry, I don't want ministry, that would be the same as saying, I do not want to glorify Jesus Christ. Now notice the end of the 16th verse. All things were created by Him, and listen, for Him. We are here because of Christ. We are created for Him. You exist for Christ. And without that purpose, there is no other reason for your existence. And that shows us that the chief end of man is not man. The chief end of man is the glory of God. You may remember, if you've been here for very long, you surely remember a statement that I've quoted several times from Robert Schuler, who was a disciple of Norman Vincent Peale. And Schuler said that classic theology has erred by being Christ-centered rather than man-centered. Well, Schuler's dead now, but unfortunately that heresy still lives on. It lives on through the power of positive thinking and of the teachings of people like Joel Osteen who, who rarely speak of Christ but insist upon your power and your potential without acknowledging the one for whom all things are made. That is what we would call a self-centered religion. Schuler's Theology was not the theology of the Bible because salvation in Christ is intended to leave helpless man in the dust from which he was made and to lift Jesus as the great Savior that delivers us from this dust of our corruption. And if we don't get that central point clear of who we are and who Christ is, then we'll never exalt Him as we should. The church exalts Christ by lifting the truth of who He is. And we are responsible "...for that truth, teaching that truth." The Word says that the church is the pillar and ground of the truth, it's the station from which we uphold truth, it's the place from which we earnestly contend for the faith that was once given to us in the New Testament through Jesus Christ, His apostles and the prophets... Now, it's extremely important for us to understand, as John the Apostle teaches in 1 John, that any view of Christ that falls short of everything that the Bible says about him is untruth. A deficient view of Christ is never God-honoring and Christ-exalting. So get this into your mind first, that the ministry of the church, the ministry of Berean Baptist Church is Christ and nothing but Christ. It is his name that's to be lifted. It's to be magnified, nothing else. And if we have any other purpose than this, then we can't have Christ. So Paul begins this chapter with the ministry of the church, which is the ministry of exaltation. Well, secondly, as we continue in our study today, the church's ministry is the ministry of reconciliation. This follows closely upon what I've just said. A deficient view of Christ will leave us short of the ability to be reconciled to Christ. And this is the reason that false gospels of men like Robert Schuller and Joel Osteen leave people still dead in their trespasses and sins. Schuller's view of man is nothing less than idolatry. But although most people don't have idols in their homes... They don't have idols that they've made with their hands as ancient Greeks and Romans did, yet they are still guilty of gross forms of idolatry. People build their personal God in their minds. And that's just as much idolatry as if they fashioned an idol out of gold and sat it in their living room and bowed to it. And so we find that there are many people who say that they are Christians, but they have no idea of the God of the Bible. And so we ask them, we ask them, what is your source of knowing and understanding who God is? Well, you and I, we will look for that information in, in the Bible. We look for it in the Scriptures because the Scriptures tell us who God is, what God did, and what God is going to do. And, and of course, they are the source of all the information that we have about what Jesus said and did. The Bible is God's self-revelation. So if anyone rejects what the Bible says about God, there can't be any other source for him but your mind, a mind that invents a God that always has your opinions and always does what you think he should do. Peter Heck in an opinion piece commented on this and He wrote, once you abandon God's self-revelation in its inerrant word to understand him, how does God not simply become a projection of your own personality? A blank canvas upon which you painted your own conception of what God should be based upon your own self-interested passions, opinions, and desires. You decide what is of ultimate value. You fashion your God to reflect it, and you worship it. Is it really that difficult for people to see how God no longer exists in such a subjective context, how that kind of religion is merely vain self-worship? And I have met people, and perhaps you have as well, that when you talk to them about God, and you explain to them the God of the Bible, they will say, no, here's the God that I serve. And somehow they equate that with what they think the Bible says, but the Bible never says it. And so what they have done is they have invented a God in their mind that does have their opinions, that acts as they think He should. And His morality is just like theirs. Now how can we expect to be reconciled to God if we don't know Him and we don't meet Him on His terms of reconciliation? The God of self-worship is a product of the unwillingness to meet the question of sin head on that we are sinners under the wrath of God. But instead, the Jesus of the Bible is reinvented and He's the God of tolerance. He is the God who says it's okay to do anything that you want to do just as long as you do something a little bit nice now and then. So these are people that don't know the one true living God, their God is a dead God, just as dead as if they worship Baal or Molech or any of the imaginary mythological gods of the Greeks and Romans. So what did God do? He tasked the church with a ministry of reconciliation. And that is a direct statement from Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.18. He said, God has given to us the ministry of Reconciliation. Now, lest you're confused about what that means, what is meant by this ministry, the ministry of reconciliation is the efforts that we make through the gospel to repair the broken fellowship between man and God because of our sin. We must be reconciled to God because sin separates us from Him. So far from the idea that God loves everybody but he's just a little bit disappointed in us is the bible's true declaration that we are at enmity with god now we should note that the bible never says that god must be reconciled to us i suppose that robert schuler missed that in his assessment of right theology god does not need to be reconciled to man because we are the ones who are the transgressors and according to the Scripture, our minds, it says, they are at enmity with God, and that enmity simply means hostility. The carnal mind, the carnal mind, the natural mind, <laughs> that's your mind, before knowing Jesus Christ is hostile to God. That truth is expressed right here in our text, verse number 21. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. You were the enemies of God. Speaking, of course, to the Colossians. Now, you might not think that of yourself or didn't. Most of you, I think, in here, I believe, are saved. You may not think this way because you hardly ever meet anybody who says, you know something, I just hate God. I have not met too many people like that. I know there are some. Most people talk about how much they are in love with God because they think God's in love with them. But nobody without Christ is in love with God. And that's proved by this universal problem of sin. If you love God, you would obey Him. You wouldn't need me to stand and read from the Bible to you and tell you about sin. So as Scripture says, there is none that seeks God. Nobody is out there doing their best to be reconciled to God because they don't think there's any hostility. There is no need for that. Well, this necessitates then a proactive stance from God to do something about this enmity that man has towards him. And so the first step of reconciliation had to be taken by God. And there is nothing that shows the mercy and the grace of God in greater degree than the willingness of God to do his utmost to bring sinful, sinful, hateful, man, who is his enemy, back to him. God rested from his work of creation, but then Adam sinned. And then God went to work immediately, again, to set in motion the means by which he would bring man back to him and make him a new creation. When Adam sinned, he destroyed the relationship he destroyed destroyed his ability to commune with God, and that was based upon his perfect obedience. When he sinned, Adam severed that relationship, and that was a break that couldn't be mended by anything that Adam could do, and it was separation that no one after him could repair. And then from that one sin of Adam, we spiraled down into multitudes of sins. Scripture says that the heart of man is... Deceitfully wicked and it became so wicked that within a few generations God destroyed man from the face of the earth. And the only ones that were saved were Noah and his family. And they were made righteous because of their faith in God. And that ark in which Noah was saved was a prototype of Jesus Christ. The Christ is that ark of safety for believers that bears us up on this sea of destruction. And all those that are in Christ, in that ark of safety, are reconciled to God. They're lifted up from this evil morass that swallows us up and keeps us away from God. And Paul says in our text that the believers in Colossae, this had happened to them. They were reconciled to God. And this becomes our ministry as Christ church, to elucidate these, this means of reconciliation. And we see it in verse number 20, how reconciliation is accomplished. It says, And having made peace through the blood of the cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. And do you see that word peace? Without Christ, we are not at peace with God. We're under God's wrath. We are made at peace with God which is the same as reconciliation, and we are made at peace through the blood of the cross. Christ appeases the wrath of God for our sins. Now, there's a Bible word for that that you should know. As you read the scriptures, I encourage you, you see words that you don't know, look them up. Many of them are theological words that have great meaning that you should know. And the method of reconciliation comes by a word that it's called propitiation. Christ satisfied God for the punishment of sin. This is propitiation. Now a moment ago, I, I said that God took that first step of reconciliation. Paul wrote that while we were yet sinners, that is, while we were incapable of doing anything for God, Christ died for us. And John shows us that God's activity is first in reconciliation. He says in 1 John 4.10, Herein is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, that is the satisfaction for our sins. This is God's work that started immediately upon the sin of Adam in the garden. God stepped out first because as offenders, we can't come from the place of offense to make things right with God. And because of this... God's next step was to implement the plan of redemption that he devised before the foundation of the world. None of this was a surprise to God. He knew what would happen, and so he had the plan of redemption before the world was ever created. Well, how is it that we know that we need to be reconciled to God? Well, the first is that we must realize that it is God who created us. He's the supreme authority. And this is information, knowledge that we have innately, although there are some that have taught themselves to deny it. It is part of human nature to know the existence of God. God's moral laws are written on our heart. And that's the reason, no matter where you go in this world, even to those that are the most backward and the most primitive, they know that it's wrong to lie they know that it's wrong to cheat and to steal and to commit adultery and to kill each other. But nature doesn't reveal the whole truth about God. Nature doesn't tell you how you can peacefully coexist with the one who created you. If God wrote this moral law on your heart, then you know that your immorality upsets the relationship between You and the Creator. And this is where religion enters the picture. People know this, but not knowing the true God, they always try to make amends with their false conceptions of God. In the Old Testament, they would often do this with such things as human sacrifice. Or it might be some other type of offering. They made gods with their hands. Uh, which was exceedingly foolish, and they worshipped those gods. Paul pointed this out while he was preaching to the Athenians on Mars Hill, as he stood there standing on streets that are lined with idols and altars and, and temples. Paul said, man or God cannot be worshipped in temples that are made with hands. God is not an image that can be made by the art of human device. But this is what they did. They made their idols because their hearts were darkened by sin. And a darkened heart will never produce truth and light. And that's the problem with people today who imagine that God thinks like them. Their minds will never come up with the God of heaven. It will never come up with the righteousness of Jehovah God. And that's because they are incapable of truth in their own minds. Now it's apparent that nature can't reveal the most essential information... To achieve reconciliation. So how is this information known to people who can't discover it on their own? There, my friends, is the work of the church. In this age, it is the church that informs every person how to be reconciled to God. The church brings people face to face with God and their sin and tells them that faith in Jesus Christ, that His faith in His death and His resurrection, that's the only way that peace can be made with God. The human condition hasn't changed in all these thousands of years. Ephesians says that our condition is so bad that we are spiritually dead. We are spiritual corpses with no power in the spiritual world. And therefore, as I said earlier, God must take the initiative. This is the reason that we would we would take issue with anyone who teaches that spiritually dead men can suddenly believe in Christ. They can't believe until they are brought to life to believe. And that is the singular work of the Holy Spirit. And you hath he quickened, you has he made alive. He's brought you to life that were dead in trespasses and sin. Well, this this work of reconciliation naturally flows into the third work of the church, and this is the ministry of salvation. So we have exaltation, reconciliation, and salvation, which brings us to the commission of the church. This is how we get the ministry of reconciliation into action. The Great Commission is the ministry of salvation as we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's imperative then that the gospel we preach be the right gospel. Now, just because people have a, a church, a church, a sign that says church over the door of the place where they meet, does not mean they preach the right gospel. Just because they claim they know Christ, doesn't mean they know Christ. In Galatians, Paul, Paul said, there's a problem. There's a gospel which is not the gospel. He says in Galatians chapter 1, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. And all perversions of the gospel boil down to one key perversion, and that is salvation by human effort rather than by the grace of God. And so any gospel that injects any hint of human effort into salvation is a perverted gospel. And this perverted gospel is the most popular because it's the way that natural people think. We naturally think this way. Uh, If you ask an unbeliever about the gospel, you'll hear their satisfaction with their spiritual lives just the way that they are. I've related... I was talking to a neighbor one day and I I asked her about her relationship with Jesus Christ and her response to that was, oh, I am a spiritual person. Well, good for you. We're all spiritual persons because we have a spirit, but that doesn't mean we know Jesus Christ. So when you ask people, well, do you know uh, that you're going to heaven or hell? And the first answer to that is, well, I think I'll go to heaven. Why do you think that you'll go to heaven? Because I'm a good person. It's almost always the universal answer. I am a good person. These are people indoctrinated with the false gospel of their good works, if they have any, which they think will justify them before God. People do not understand the true gospel until they are told that the natural humanistic response is the wrong response. You know and I know as believers, that none of us are going to go to heaven because we're good, because there's none of us good. The same Bible that is the self-revelation of God is also the revelation of man, isn't it? Of who we truly are. The Bible shows us the true view of all people, that all of us are sinners, that none of us have done good, none of us are looking for the right God because He always condemns our sin. Now let me point out rather quickly, three important aspects of the gospel as it relates to the responsibility of the church. The first of these is that it is the gospel for the world. The gospel is universal in scope. The universality of it is seen in places like Romans 1.16 and 1 John 2.2. 2. So I'm giving you this so we all know that there's no one left out. For I am not ashamed, Paul says, of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to every one that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 1 John 2, 2. And he is the propitiation. There you see that word, the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So John says he is not just a Jewish Savior. He didn't die just for our sins, but he died for everyone who believes in him, Jew or Gentile. Now, in both of these cases, the writers point out that the gospel was not confined to one race of people. Christ did not come to die for one race, but for all kinds of people. So there isn't a separate gospel depending on who you are and where you were born, where you live. The Jews, when they heard this, had much trouble with it because they heard the disciples preaching to others than Jews and they thought that God was only interested in Jews. Paul was nearly torn apart at the temple when he said, I am sent to the Gentiles. This this gospel is the gospel of the nations. That's what Gentile means, the nations. Now, I've already remarked that the church is primarily Gentile. So this means that Caucasians and Hispanics and Koreans and Filipinos and blacks and any others, God saves all kinds of people. This is not... Just something that you hear from me because it's my opinion. There's a scene in heaven in Revelation chapter 5 verse 9 in which the redeemed of God are defined. In the ninth verse of chapter 5, And they sung a new song, the redeemed sing a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book, speaking to Christ, to take the book and open the seals thereof, for Thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by Thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. The redeemed are not limited to certain people groups. God can and will save anyone that repents of their sins and puts their trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone. And this is the reason the commission begins, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. So if the Jews needed anything else, a hint that Gentiles would be saved, that makes it very clear. Paul understood it as he preached the gospel indiscriminately. Now, going back to Mars Hill, where he, he's speaking to the Athenians, he says, and the times, Acts seventeen thirty, and the times of this ignorance God winked at. But now commandeth who? All men everywhere to repent. I would say there's no doubt that repentance is the most missed part in gospel presentations. This is the call for the sinner to repentance, and yet it's hard to find a gospel tract that emphasizes repentance. Now, those of you, again, who have been here for quite some time, you know that this was a big sticking point with me with tracts that we had around the church when I became a pastor, pastor that redefined repentance or didn't have repentance in them at all. Most soul-winning ministries have departed the Scripture on this vital commandment. What they do is they redefine repentance to make it synonymous with faith. Repentance and faith are not the same thing, although they can't exist without each other in the Gospel. Repentance is turning away from sin. Repentance is admitting that you are a sinner under the wrath of God and then faith is turning towards Jesus Christ. And so without repentance and faith, no one enters the kingdom of heaven. We must have the right gospel, a complete gospel, else we don't have the gospel at all. Next, it's the gospel of warning. Well, now we come to another neglected doctrine in the church. Probably the most neglected doctrine in church today is the doctrine of eternal punishment. In our text, Paul says in verses 27 and 28, To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach warning every man. Well, now a good question is, what did he warn them about? Oh, well, I guess he was warning them about the wonderful plan that God has for their life. Oh, he was warning them how much God loves them so much that he can't stand to live without them. Well, do we seriously wonder what Paul was warning about? Is he warning about, oh, well, then it's about how wonderful their lives will be after they got saved. Is that what he warned them about? Oh, I, I think not. I think not. I think we see in here that he is uh, preaching a gospel of repentance, a gospel of eternal damnation. He's teaching about the fires of hell. He is teaching them the consequences of the reprobate mind that remains in unbelief. Romans one eighteen. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. He goes on in the 32nd verse, who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. And then on into the second chapter, verse five, but after that, thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up wrath thyself wrath against the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So the warning of the apostle is they will lose their souls if they do not repent and turn to Christ. And his warning is that they are on the fast track to a lake that is burning with fire and brimstone where the smoke of the tormented rises forever. The most important Part of the good news of the gospel is that you can escape the wrath of God. It is on you as an unbeliever. But the gospel says you can escape the wrath of God. And so before you ever start thinking about how good you are and how heaven will be, you better think how awful hell is because that's where the Bible says people without Christ go. The best news is you don't have to go to hell. Paul preached the riches of Christ's glory, which is the alternative to destruction in hell. So you can't leave the reality of hell out of the ministry of salvation. If people don't know they're on the way to hell, then they'll never understand the seriousness of their sins against God. People aren't saved until they come face to face with the punishment Rightly, justly do them because of their sin. Sin purchased death in the fires of hell, while Christ's death purchased redemption. It purchased release from the bondage of sin. So those that say, we don't want to preach about hell, and you will hear that often on television, in the prosperity ministries, we've got something else to preach, we do not want to preach about hell, They just need to shorten that up and say, we don't have the gospel here. There is no gospel here. Thirdly, it's the gospel of wisdom. Verse number 28, whom we preach warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. The gospel is the enlightenment of the wisdom of God. This is wisdom that we don't have, It is wisdom that we can't obtain except through the ministry of the gospel. Paul said the world by wisdom did not know God. They couldn't learn God through natural understanding. Instead, what did their sinful minds do? Well, it led them to idols and false gospels. How then did they learn? The apostle said it is by the foolishness of preaching 1 Corinthians 1.21, For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. What does that mean? Does this mean I'm standing up here and, wow, this exercise that I'm doing this morning, that's the most foolish thing that people can do? Some may think that, but Paul is not saying that preaching is foolish. He's saying that it pleased God To save people by the foolishness of the thing that is preached. And what is preached that is so foolish to people? Christ. Christ. The Greek philosophers had never heard anything as foolish as God becoming man to die for sin. There was nothing as foolish to them as a bodily resurrection. Now still, going back to that Mars Hill experience, the Athenians were tr- intrigued by this assertion that the dead would be raised. And Paul told them that the resurrection of dead, of the dead sealed the judgment of God against them. Now they were wise, and in their wisdom they were great philosophers, but it never led them to repentance, but only into deeper and deeper sins, some of which we dare not mention in polite company. Or we used not to mention it in polite company. Now it's paraded up and down the streets with rainbow flags. The very sins that Paul preached against to these people that condemned them to hell. Nowadays our society is struggling as hard as it can to keep up with Roman perversions to the point that we have nearly exceeded it if we haven't already. Now the Jews likewise thought that the death of the Messiah was foolish... Even though the Old Testament taught it, they didn't recognize it, and they still don't recognize it today. But it is by this foolish message that God uses to save us. It's God's wisdom that confounds the worldly wise. And I think it's so interesting that intellectuals call the death of the Son of God by His Father cosmic child abuse. They can't put this together because their minds are too small compared with God's wisdom. Paul said to Timothy, But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. This is the gospel committed to the church. This ministry is the highest calling and Paul said that as well. He was thoroughly committed to the church so that after his conversion he was fully engrossed in this one thing in which he said, this one thing I do, this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. How little do we recognize... How blessed we are to be the salt and the light of the earth that leads people on their way to hell, to life in Jesus Christ. Dying people are led to life through Jesus Christ. Now with that responsibility, friends, how is there anyone who can think that the church, the assembly of God's people, commissioned to do his work, can be taken lightly. Ours is a high calling for the glory of Christ. God gives us the the way to fulfill the reason for our existence. Many people contemplate that. They are perplexed by it. Why am I here? Some are distraught by it. They don't understand it. They don't know the meaning of their existence and for some people it even leads them into depression and suicide. But the New Testament leaves us with No doubt, without loss, to understand this question, why am I here? The believer knows, the believer knows the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. God made us for fellowship. It's through this wonderful, God-anointed institution of the church that we have fellowship with Him. The church is here as the way to fulfill, friends, God's purpose for your life. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brean Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Baptist Church. 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.